Father, we're grateful for the grand day that we've enjoyed. We thank you for um, the calling that you've given us to serve you in this world and for your uh, kind regard for our efforts in the day past. And we pray now as we turn to this time of study and reflection that uh, you would um, give us peace and quiet and an opportunity to reflect on these um, very important subjects and to have our hearts encouraged by the great gospel hope that is found in our considerations tonight. And we pray all of this for Christ's sake, asking, uh, especially as the, we move toward these days, uh, uh, the meeting of the assembly and the uh, formal hearing of this report before the assembly, we pray that you would grant um, the work favor in the eyes of our folk and that it would be a great help to strengthen uh, your church to uh, bring um, the, the truth in love to a broken and confused world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can everyone hear me all right? When I did the sound check, it sounded very quiet to me, but um, do I, am I coming across? It sounds great, yeah. All right. Yeah. Super. All right, thank you. Well, uh, last time uh, we are on the general topic, um, what I'm calling part four of the paper, um, biblical perspectives uh, for pastoral care. We've looked at the first biblical perspective for pastoral care under the rubric of discipleship. We followed that up with identity. And um, we finish tonight with a discussion of terminology. Uh, But we want to look back to identity just for a moment and see if anyone uh, thinking about what we talked about last week has any further questions or other questions uh, that have arisen that we should um, consider. All right. Well, seeing no one... um, Let's press on. Then tonight's the conclusion, as I said, of this portion of the paper. We're looking at terminology, and it's set forth in four sections. We'll begin with on language. We then turn to a consideration of the terms gay and uh, the phrase gay Christian. Then we consider uh, the term orientation. And then finally, uh, sum things up in uh, thinking together a little bit about singleness, friendship, and community, uh, and uh, the connections between those points. Um, So we turn to terminology, and um, the, the committee wants to argue that they've laid a foundation in thinking about human identity in relationship to sexuality. Uh, So uh, that foundation um, being a solid footing, they want to take up the questions of uh, terminology, terminology, they say, that has taken up so much time and space in current debates. Uh, And that's an understatement. Um, And as we come to the question of terminology, uh, the committee, I think, has a bunch of very fruitful and thoughtful things to say. But we ought to remind ourselves that... Uh, I was going to have for lunch that they never ended up eating until um, Steve, I guess your mic must be on. Sorry. Uh, that's all right. <laughs> um, the, we, we need to remind ourselves how fraught this area is biblically. Um Paul spoke to Timothy twice about it in giving him pastoral counsel for the life of the church. In 1 Timothy 6.4, Paul warned about those who would be part of the church but have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, uh, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. And with that warning in mind, then in the second epistle, uh, in 2.14, Paul urges uh, Timothy to charge 
the congregation before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So, um, and we think of James's uh, instructions about the use of the tongue and how it can be uh, impossible to govern and uh, be something that spreads fire. So, we know we need to have a care here that this is, uh, it may seem like a um, relatively minor matter, but it, it can be a major matter. And I think our committee's counsels are very useful to us here, especially with Paul's warnings uh, ringing in our ears. So the first thing they want to do is talk generally about language and uh, set before us very briefly four principles that they think are crucial to us as we think about our use of this good gift of speech. Uh, and the first thing they want to say is that uh, though we don't want quarrels about words, uh, language really does matter. Uh, this is a crucial element as we seek to articulate the truth uh, and have people understand that articulation. And with, without choosing carefully um, the way we speak, uh, we won't be able to reach that goal of truth and a communication that is clear and attractive, uh, words that are um, uh, wholesome, as Paul puts it in another place, are healthful, and uh, therefore um, they fit the context. Those few points there are critically important. Our language use needs to be cho- chosen to be sure that we're capturing the truth, that it's clear. Uh, They use the term winsome, and it's designed for a particular context. It's mindful uh, about the people I'm speaking to and in in what framework. Uh, There's a lot packed in there, but that's a very wholesome reminder. The second is that uh, for as important as all it is, now they're going to counterbalance it slightly, to say that it is nonetheless a secondary issue uh, relative to the truth. The truth is the main thing. The doctrine of the scripture is the main thing. And um, the uh, language is not the primary question. The primary question is the truth. And they notice that there are sometimes that there are disagreements about language even when there seems to be uh, an underlying agreement about what the truth is, uh, similar doctrinal commitments. Um, That's not to say that uh, a disagreement about language might not be important, but it's to say that we don't let ourselves get confused to think we really have a substantial issue and all it is is a, a way of framing the matter. You can see this with a couple of easy examples. Um, We have the great tulip uh, that captures the essence of the doctrine of salvation as Reformed folk understand it. Um, And we have uh, the dreaded L, limited atonement. This is the idea that Christ died for his people and his death for them was effective to save them. It didn't just give them the opportunity. Uh, It is a saving work, and uh, it is a matter of the Spirit applying it to them, but um, it's a very powerful and important doctrine. But there are many Reformed folk who don't care for the phrasing limited atonement, and they uh, prefer particular redemption. And I think there's no doubt that but, uh, both groups, maybe the ones more attracted to the acronym and its historical standing, uh, bo- both groups hold to the same Bible doctrine. Uh, but the particular redemption people, uh, for example, tend to think that the word limited is misleading, that everybody except universalists limits the atonement in some sense. It's just not Calvinistic people who believe the atonement is limited. Um, Uh, The debate there is between the limited design uh, and the limited effectiveness. Uh, But both Calvinists and non-Calvinists have the word limit. And these folk think it puts us at a disadvantage to use that term. 
stick with the illustration of, of the tulip. We have the P, of course, uh, and the um, that stands for the perseverance of the saints. But there are some people, um, you'll remember perhaps from Dr. Packer, he being one of them, uh, who prefer the preservation of the saints to capture this doctrine. And uh, both groups uh, believe exactly the same thing about the Bible's teaching, but perseverance of the saints tends to focus on the saints. It's something that they do, and Dr. Packer prefers and thinks it's more uh, concordant with Scripture's teaching that we ought to be talking about what God does. He, God preserves the saints, and that is why they persevere. So do you see that point? Uh, these are secondary matters. No one ought to be falling on a sword about them. And they're even worth discussing at points. But the crucial thing is not to lose sight of the fact there's actual material agreement on the matter. Um, so um, it, it, our committee urges us that issues around terminology, terminology have more to do with practical wisdom and communication uh, and ought to be handled carefully under that rubric, not uh, under whether one shares in the truth. The third point about language in general is that we recognize what's uh, what ought to be plain to us is that the meaning of the words we use change over time. Uh, and that a second point is that different communities, different groups, uh, use um, words in different ways, and we have to be attentive to that. That uh, uh, the same definitions aren't shared often uh, between different groups of people, um, uh, and so you can think of all kinds of uh, instances of this. Um, uh, of terms changing over time, sometimes, in fact, coming to meet almost the opposite of uh, what, what they had meant. And we're going to face that in some of the terms used uh, in the controversy here. Um, so the point is then to be attentive to it. And uh, 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 that means uh, we can't just say, uh, uh, no, that's what this word means always has meant and always must mean. We, we live in a circumstance where uh, terminology is fluid and um, and different groups use terms in different ways. The final thing is that, in particular, um, the concerns about um, uh, sexuality and biblical teaching on sexuality uh, can't be reduced to language alone. Um, and here they're getting at something important. Uh, they think that to, to make, um, uh, for example, to use the word gay, to make gay central to who, your personhood is a bad thing. But you could use relatively benign language and uh, not seem as if you're doing anything that's unacceptable. And on the other hand, there might be a person who uses the word gay, uh, but not to communicate that somehow it's central to who he is, uh, but um, it, 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 because he thinks it, it communicates better uh, in a, a given um, context, even, way, even though it may not be the best way to put it. Um, and so uh, that's an important point. The footnote on this page, num number 56, also is useful and uh, very important to remember, I think. Uh, Silva's bo book is a very uh, fine book, Biblical Words and Their Meaning, and the quotation's important. Linguistics, lingui linguists assign a determinative function to context. That is, context doesn't merely help us in understand meaning, it virtually makes meaning. And that, that's very important as a principle of interpretation. 
uh, the context of the words in the sentence, the sentence in the paragraph, the paragraph in the overall body, and the time and place in which it's used are all uh, very important considerations for us to understand uh, the use of words properly. Let me pause there and see if anyone has a, a comment or a question, uh, a remark you'd like to make about um, this first uh, reflection on language in general. All right, seeing nothing, then let's dive into uh, the debates, um, starting with gay and gay Christian. So uh, they want us to understand, uh, as of course you, you surely must, that the word gay has undergone a massive lexical transformation in the past 75 years, is the way they put it. Um, the uh, uh, it, it used to be a lovely word that spoke of uh, sort of a lightheartedness uh, um, and uh, 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 a uh, joy. Uh, but now, of course, it's used with respect to homosexuality and uh, those who have an ongoing um, sexual attraction to people of the same sex. Um, but they want us to remember that... Um, People might use the word gay um, for a variety of reasons. And so you'd have to listen carefully uh, to understand. Um, one, they say, uh, nothing more than uh, identifying the fact of same-sex attractiveness using words that are familiar in the culture. Um, the... Um, uh, some use the word gay because they don't like the historic setting of the phrase same-sex attraction, which they note uh, at least a decade ago uh, was very much associated with uh, ex-gay uh, therapies and orientation change approaches that uh, people were using. And um, and so same-sex attraction became uh, so much aligned with that point of view uh, that there were many people who didn't want to use that to, to become associated with what they didn't want to be associated with, and so they used gay as an alternative. Um, the uh, others, they note, uh, uh, who claim to be Christians might use the word gay in order to identify uh, with um, the community of people that uh, um, are called LGBT, and now there's even more initials. Um, but um, the, uh, in fact, one of the articles in the footnotes is very interesting in that you've noticed over time that more and more initials have had to be added to that phrase, so that now it's very hard to keep track of. And it raises a question as to... Uh, whether or not one thing is properly being described. Um, but in any case, um, the, uh, they note on the top of page 30 that as gay is used in our culture, um, it includes the assumption that the experience of same-sex attraction is natural and a good part of diverse human experience that is to be celebrated and can be acted upon as a person sees fit. And so the word is uh, fraught with difficulty. Um, uh, and uh, we need to listen carefully and we need to think carefully about whether it's a term that's appropriate to communicate the truth uh, clearly uh, and um, in love. So um, their point then is it's not a neutral word and Christians need to be very thoughtful about these dynamics uh, uh, when they consider the use of the term. They move from there to gay Christian, uh, and that, uh, they think, leads to even greater difficulties. Uh, it might be simply used as an adjective um, and uh, simply wanting to denote same-sex attraction um, without it 
being, uh, uh, an assertion of some indelible imprint on the personhood of the one who uses it. Um, on the other hand, uh, there are some who are same-sex attracted, but they are in Christ and submitting themselves to Christ. Uh, they um, are refusing to perf- pursue the sexual desires that they have, uh, but they uh, think that they need to be able to um, say uh, that they're same-sex attracted, and thus the uh, term that's used is celibate gay Christian. Um, uh, and of course, there are many folk who uh, object absolutely to the word gay being associated with Christian. Um, but our committee says that um, the phrase is not adequately clear or theologically precise to capture uh what they've tried to say to us about the nature of uh, biblical personhood, and they think that there are more unhelpful things about it than helpful things. Um, uh, Because, of course, there are some who say, not only are are they describing an an indelible uh, imprint on their personality, but that, in fact, those same-sex desires and relationships can be blessed by God. Um, uh, which, of course, would violate the scripture view that our committee is trying to communicate. Um, uh, nonetheless, they acknowledge that they they can understand why there are some uh, celibate, same-sex attracted Christians who use the word gay uh, as a part of their attempt to do apologetics and to uh, have a Christian mission with respect to other homosexuals, um, and uh, that it's, they think, an important communication tool. Um, the committee, however, feels like there's a danger here, danger particularly of syncretism, that you begin to mix things that don't properly mix at all, and uh, because of that, um, the concluding paragraph uh, in this section uh, they insist that um, there's the temptation that uh, the um, there would come to be an identification with a gay Christian community more than the church itself, or that there would be a gay uh, Christian subculture in the life of the church. Both of those would be uh, very dangerous and syncretistic, and uh, therefore they think it's unwise to use the language of gay Christian. That being the case, they uh, say, what should we do if if there are fellow believers who think that language is important and useful? Um, And uh, the first thing they do is say, well, we have to offer the judgment of charity that if they say they don't intend to be doing that and uh, and that they think they have good reasons for doing it, then we grant it, that we don't immediately assume they're being sinful and rebellious. Um, then they encourage um, that folk would talk this matter over, uh, ask questions, try and understand why the person thinks the language is important or whether there are alternatives that could capture what they would really like to do. Uh, the um, closing part of the paragraph here uh, uh, says, noting the range of possible meanings of terms like gay and gay Christian, we would do well to seek understanding before imparting advice. Now there's a novel idea. (laughs) Seek understanding before imparting advice. You'd think that wouldn't need to be said, but unhappily, it's probably very important to say. Um, but in any case, they want to say they don't think that in and of itself uh, these terminological uh, differences around gay and gay Christian and so on ought to be uh, any kind of grounds for correction or discipline in the church. Let me pause there so that I don't get too many issues on the table all at once and uh, see if you have any questions or comments or 
concerns about what you've heard thus far. All right. Well, um, I, I, I must be speaking with clarity and uh, winsomeness. <laughs> uh, I'll press on then to uh, orientation. Um, the um, How should we think of the language of sexual orientation? Uh, they note it might be simply used descriptively uh, to argue for a particular set of experiences. And it uh, can be useful in that way. However, they note, uh, the term orientation often carries with it a set of assumptions about the nature of that experience that is unbiblical. Uh, That is, it carries with it the assumption that um, orientation is something that's fixed, uh, indelible, um, uh, perhaps uh, certainly genetic in some form or another, uh, and therefore it's normative for the per- people who have it. Um, the, uh, and, and thus, in that context, uh, the um, use of the term and idea of orientation can be very, very misleading uh, in a Christian context. Um, footnote f- 58 gives you the opportunity to look at some very provocative discussions of all of this, um, and uh, uh, the essay in First Things uh, by uh, Michael Hannon, uh, that essay actually claims that there's no such thing as homosexuality or heterosexuality, that um, the, uh, the terms were invented in the, the 19th century and um, uh, they've mostly done harm, not good. And it's very provocative and it uh, um, has uh, stirred a lot of conversation around it. And uh, so the footnotes are worth, if you have the time, it's worth reading some of it. Um, the, um, but the, the point is, we, we got into this a little, bit, a little bit last time, that it's one thing to talk about homosexual desire that seems to me entirely appropriate, same-sex desire, uh, but, but it's not at all clear to me, at least, why we should ever speak of that as an identity or an orientation. Um, it, it's a sinful desire, and uh, there, are, as we noted, there can be non-moral causes, in part, for sinful desires, but why let it be reified into something that can seem like a, a kind of captivity, a, um, a uh, moral necessity with respect to a person. Uh, it can be, I think, a kind of uh, bondage to uh, given to that way of thinking and talking about it. And uh, I, I myself um, would have a good bit of concern about continuing to use the idea of orientation or identity for that matter. Any comments, questions, thoughts on uh, that point? Dave, it, it takes a long time to find my chat hand. I mean, my, <laughs> my hand, raising my hand, so I'm just going <laughs> to jump in here. Sure, that's fine. So I'm trying to understand... Um, what you're saying so the terms sexual orientation and sexual identity are two I'm just summarizing are two ways of describing um, a, a person who has homosexual desire except that it, it, that's true but it describes them in a way that describes their being not their doing Okay, and so... It purports um, to. 
it purports to describe their being, right. not their doing. Okay. okay. So is if sexual orientation or sexual identity is heterosexual, it's they're talking about the same thing. I mean I mean of course the their identity is different, but they would speak of someone who is a heterosexual as that's their orientation or that's their identity. That's right. As if they've chosen that. Uh, no, actually, th- this gets away from the idea of chosen. Oh, chose. Oh, right. It's the it's the be their being. Right. So that's their being, a heterosexual's being, and then the other is a homosexual's being. Right. Okay. And and I, I I think the criticism is equally applicable to the use of the term heterosexual. Um. And um. I I think. The, the, the criticism that's raised here is sound, that um, biblically we want to talk about being created in the image of God. And created in the image of God means male and female, and that God intended for those created in his image, male and female, in the main, to marry and have children. And... Um, that's not a variation on a theme. That's what is. And um, to call that heterosexual as opposed to homosexual uh, appears to make it a different kind. Mm -hmm. Whereas what we're saying and, and what the committee has argued so powerfully for is that no, image of God is determinative. Every one of us shares the image of God. And the um, creation character of every one of us is that we are male or female and that we ought to um, live out the calling of being created in the image of God as as male or female. Okay, that's helpful. Um, And so... Now, I don't know, I have two questions. So now, I mean, we used to say uh, there's heterosexual, there's homosexual, and there's bisexual. Right. And now we have sexual fluidity. Yeah, that and... And and so that it's bisexual is just, I mean, I guess what we're adding is transgender and... I don't know what else there is. There are only two sexes. There's male and female, so you can't divide that up into too many categories, can you? <laughs> you can't divide it up into any more categories is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, but the point is that, you know, there are people now talking about being polyandrous. Uh, wow. So uh, that's why I, I think some of the critiques that... Remember, these terms are modern terms. Right. Um, and so, for example, the word homosexual doesn't appear in the Bible. Oh, I thought it did. I mean, what's, what are the words that... The words are action words. Words that refer to um, uh, same-sex attracted sexual acts. Not their identity. That's right. Oh, got it. Okay. All right. Thank you. That was very helpful. Yeah. I was getting mixed up. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, Bill or Bonnie? Bonnie. Bonnie. Um, So I'm just making sure that I'm understanding this correctly. When they're saying that it's identity or orientation, what... They're saying is that that's the way they were made, whereas the truth of what the, the Word of God says is that we were created in its image. We weren't created that way, is what you're saying. The study is pointing out that, what, that we're not made that way. Um, way. What, what um, I want to try and be very careful here. Okay. I, I, I'm not saying that in a fallen world there might not be some component 
of genetic or developmental uh, distortion that contributes to uh, same-sex desire. So when you say created that way, you, you may have come into the world with certain problems that are predispositional. But if by what you mean not created that way, if you're referring to human nature in general, that's what we're trying to get at. That that um, to make anything that's sinful in us into an ontological part of us is to distort the Bible's doctrine of creation. Because created in the image of God, uh, male and female is our being. That gets distorted by original sin. Remember, we talked about the moral image and the natural image. The natural image, though, is retained throughout. And it's that natural image that is uh, reformed, uh, brought to life morally again in regeneration. But it's the same human nature throughout in God's image. And it's harmful for people to um, not have that be foundational to who they are, to their being, and and not to understand that, it, that um, it, to put it this way, and this is the older language, maybe this will just even be more confusing, but to use the older language, sin is accidental to our nature. That's the old language of trying to understand change. You had, you have something uh, that, it is being, it's the essence of a thing. And then you have things that are a part of it, but not part of the essence. So uh, we're created in the image of God. I've got black hair. Uh, somebody has blonde hair. Um, you have the idea of a table, but there are tables with three legs and two legs. Uh, well, I guess it'd be a pretty tricky table with two legs. But the, <laughs> the point is... Um, yeah, those things aren't part of the essence of the thing. They're uh, things that can come and go. And that's true with respect to the, us creating the image of God. Our moral uprightness uh, was changeable. And um, the, uh, but now, in our fallen state, it's still changeable. It's not a fixed part of our being. And the wonderful power of the gospel is that not only is there the possibility of change, but there actually comes to be real change in the lives of sinful people that frees us from the absolute bondage and over time has us more and more die to sin and more and more come alive to righteousness. But if I use terminology that reinforces over and over again that somehow this is part of my being, it severely undermines um, gospel hope and understanding. Does that? It, it helps a little. I guess I'm just having a hard time distinguishing between being and, and yet I think what you said really helps me with understanding that in the in our the fallen world that the way that that we become because of sin opens up all of these, uh, all, all manner of sin that we have to deal with. Right. And that these are just sins that are more in, um, I guess, in the news and dealt with and having, maybe not in the news, that's not a good way to use it, but just something that we're having to deal with more um, head on because it's more prevalently presented in a different way in our society. Right, and and I think that uh, we have uh, been challenged to have to think more carefully and uh, fully, more 
richly on these subjects. Um, and I think that, in fact, the controversy has helped to bring out more light uh, yeah. biblically on the subject. Thanks, Dave. Still struggling with my brain on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Any other thoughts? I just a thought after Bonnie asked her question and you were answering it. If, if it's part of your being, um, then you can't repent of it. I mean, I can't repent for being born white. Right. And so that is a part of. I shouldn't repent of that because God created me that way. Right. Okay, gotcha. Right. Sorry, wait, so is it, is race part of our being? Is that what no, just mentioned? No, no I, I, I don't think so. I think that that's accidental as well to use that older language. Maybe that isn't helpful, but it isn't part of our essence, no. Because from what I've understood from the conversation that the image of God is the only essential part of our being, right? Yes, that's correct. And and that essence every human being shares. Mm-hmm. Okay, so later we'll talk about what that was all. What? I'm sorry? <laughs> so, I mean, I just bringing in... I. That I I shouldn't have brought in being born white. That's a different discussion. Right. Okay, so that's not part of my being. That's no, it, it, it's not part of you. <laughs> right. Okay, got it. Who, who knows what color you'll be in heaven? <laughs> the um, Any other questions on this point? Do, do, you, do you get the fundamental idea here that the committee is asking us to think carefully about, and, and I may be pushing the committee more than they want to. I don't think so. I think I'm, I, I'm but, but when they're raising questions about the notion of identity and they're raising questions about the idea of orientation, in both cases, it's taking some sinful and biblically necessarily changeable part of us and making it seems like it's not, that it's part of who I am-ness and um, that that is an impediment to understanding who we are as created, our fallen condition, and our possibilities for redemption. That's in a sentence, the essence of what we're, I'm, I'm trying to get what I think the committee's trying to get at. Uh, Chambers. Yeah, Dave, just really quick to summarize how I'm trying to um, process what you're saying. Our being, the, the essential nature of our being is that we're made in God's image in the form of man and woman. Yes. Male and female. Yes. And that the use, the the very uh, undisciplined use of of these terms, both in the church and in our culture, is clouding over and confusing, and perhaps even um, shielding us from that essential truth of how we're made. Yes. By by stating by labeling identity and orientation in a degree of permanence that makes it sound like that's part of our essential. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Other thoughts? All right. Uh, um, Let me... um, I want, to, I want to be sure we get through this. Um, all right, singleness, friendship, and community. Um, 
the committee notes that um, it has not been uncommon, uh, sadly, that same-sex attracted believers have not found a home uh, in the church. Um, And uh, this is especially and acutely a problem because the committee notes um, faithful discipleship um, is uh, critically includes a um, connection with the body of Christ uh, that is the visible church. Uh, a connection uh, that gives a sense of belonging, a connection uh, for encouragement, a connection for uh, um, accountability. And um, they note the great sadness that um, the uh, same-sex attracted uh, community is often more welcoming uh, to such folks than the church. And um, th- this is a, ought to be a, 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 a serious concern to the body of Christ. Um, and um, f- footnote 59 uh, has uh, quotes Rosaria Butterfield um, and her use of uh, Mark 10, 28 to 31. Um, and that's a remarkable text. Um, let me read it for you. Um, truly, this is Jesus speaking. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now that remarkable text is uh, then Rosaria Butterfield comments on it. She said, we need to get it that this blessing promised is not going to fall from the sky. It's going to come from the church. It's going to come from the people of God acting like the family of God. That's such a powerful point. And and it's such a glorious calling that the church has um, that we have the opportunity to be the agency, the means of Christ's promise coming true. That by counting ourselves as brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters of the whole of God's people and having our homes opened up in hospitality, uh, shared burdens and joys uh, to weep together and to laugh and dance together. Um, This is part of the fulfillment of Christ's promise for those who um, deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. And um, this is such a rich and glorious calling that um, it it is wonderful that the committee takes a good bit of time to try and challenge the church to think other than um, the way it has been and to embrace um, this idea. the, they note that uh, believers struggling with same-sex attraction um, have a, a, normally a very deep-felt need for community and companionship uh, and uh, belonging. And it's because it's, it's part of the image of God. Um, uh, the, uh, to be part of community is what we were made for. To be part of a family is what we were made for. Um, And uh, to restore us to that fullness is what the church is about, um, that we're the family, the household of God. Um, uh, And so um, on... uh, the, about the middle of page 31, um, 
they say churches must be committed to being communities of welcome for all sinners. Uh, for repentant believers who know the struggle of same-sex attraction, our churches may welcome them not merely as broken people to be ministered to, but also as active and important participants and contributors in our community. That is such a powerful point they're making. Um, And uh, they conclude the thought, insofar as such persons display the requisite Christian maturity, we do not consider this sin struggle automatically to disqualify someone from leadership in the church. Now, I'm sure the committee's going to get some very serious, and already has gotten some very serious pushback on that proposition. Uh, But I I think it's a powerful part of their argument. Um, The... uh, um, but regardless of what your thought is on that, the earlier point is very important, that um, all sinners, especially same uh, sex-attracted sinners, should be welcome and not merely as uh, projects for repair, but rather as those uh, who are growing in the image of Christ and can uh, have a, a wonderful part in the life of the church. Um, they continue on uh, to talk about friendships and they first of all insist that there's too little concern about friendships in the life of the church um, and the uh, we ought to take steps more to uh, have same-sex friendships be prized uh, of the character of David and Jonathan, Jesus and John, Paul and Timothy. Um, the, um, but, on the other hand, to apparently some Christians uh, who are same-sex attracted uh, have wanted to have celibate partnerships that are celibate but retain certain romantic elements uh, and are exclusive. And the committee urges that this would be very unwise uh, and uh, that the scripture categories are familial and filial relations. And that is the most wholesome thing for same-sex attracted people and in friendships. And uh, same-sex attracted people ought to be welcomed to be have filial and familial relationships in the church um, and to find love and care um, uh, and th- that friendship can be powerful without any need to introduce some idea of either r- romance or exclusivity uh, the committee argues that's a fundamental category mistake and in a very strong statement, they say the attempt to bring aspects of a marital relationship into a non-marital relationship is itself a violation of the seventh commandment. Um, so uh, they've taken a very strong stand there, and I think there uh, is a good bit of wisdom in, in what they're arguing. Um, then they turn to singleness and um Again, a nice point, they say, singleness shouldn't be treated as a problem to be solved, but rather, for some, it's a calling from the Lord. Uh, And they're to uh, express um, that calling in a life of service in the church. Um, And at the same time, a person who's unmarried ought to um, uh, have the opportunity to be a a mother or father, sister or brother, uh, son or daughter in those filial and uh, familial relationships in the life of the church um, and embraced. Um, the And same-sex attracted people in particular, here they're just talking about folk who are unmarried, same-sex attracted people in particular pursuing chastity, um, they... Um, 
they may have a lifelong calling to being unmarried. And um, the uh, there's no good reason the committee insists, biblically or confessionally, to say that uh, the resolution to same-sex attraction is marriage. Um, they think that's a profound mistake, and we can't take the time now to go into that any further. Um, but the point is that being unmarried can be a gift from the Lord, uh, a gift by the Spirit of God for the upbuilding of the church. And they point out eschatology, eschatologically that in the new heavens and the new earth, um, marriages won't be contracted any longer. There'll still be the deep love of husband and wife, but there'll be a greater intimacy with God and all the saints um, that will be added to that. Um, and thus, uh, in, 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 in one sense, the heavenly picture is the, the, the picture of the whole body of Christ as mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and sons and daughters, uh, a grand family. Um, and so they conclude... Uh, by saying that our uh, that the scripture and our confessions uh, are p- profoundly useful resources for uh, pastoral care for those dealing with same-sex attraction, and that we ought to embrace the richness of what God has given us in His Word. We ought to have a care to interpret it properly, a care to uh, uh, apply it properly, and a joy in having the opportunity. Uh, to be uh, part of caring uh, for brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with same-sex attraction. Um, And they conclude with something that came to the forefront in the earlier statements that I think is very powerful, um, that same-sex attracted Christians, uh, when they repudiate the behavior and instead pursue lives of faithfulness through chastity and obedience to Christ, daily echoing Christ's words, not my will be done, but yours, uh, with respect to their sexuality, they become a model for us for what it means to heed Jesus' teaching. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Uh, Same-sex attracted celibate believers can be heroic examples uh, of Christian dying to self and living unto Christ. And we ought to be glad for the opportunity to see such Christian heroism uh, in the life of another. uh, And that in this, we all should be together seeking to emulate such behavior and looking forward in response to that, uh, to hear our Lord say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, let me um, stop there and see if you have any questions. Um, next week, we'll go on to a new part. Uh, um, I'll be calling that part five. Uh, it's entitled Apologetic Approaches for Speaking to the World. Uh, and uh, they're going to look at in this section, Contemporary Narrative and uh, Challenges. This is a very, very interesting portion of the paper, and I think we'll enjoy discussing it. But uh, for now, any questions, comments, concerns uh, from anyone? I I hope I haven't plunged you all into confusion this evening. (laughs) uh, but um, hey Dave. yes, Dave. Uh, leadership in the church. You mentioned on page thirty-one that they're, the committee is getting some blowback on, uh, or the the folks that wrote this. They say we do not consider the sin struggle automatically to disqualify someone for leadership in the church. Um, I'd underline that, and now I'm trying to remember what my question was. <laughs> I think I think I was wondering if. What do they mean by leadership in the church? Are they talking about church officers? Are they talking about certain elders versus uh, other folks or teaching elders versus ruling elders or just sort of people in charge of the assembly? What, what does leadership in the church mean? I, I think they mean everything 
because the, if you'll notice the scripture texts they cite are uh, the two texts um, showing uh, the calling of uh, uh, elders and deacons in the church and uh, and then texts that uh, talk about people who were once uh, not able to enter the kingdom of God and some were such some of you who were such as these, says Paul, but you're no longer that. Um, and then the long passage from Peter um, about um, what it means to be converted and so on. So I, I think they must mean uh, any form of leadership that they're qualified for. Otherwise, uh, wrestling with same-sex attraction, they don't think it would be disqualifying. Okay, thank you. Um, Dave, this is especially, can you hear me? Yeah. 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 Um, So um, what we've seen in the news, though, um, is that there are uh, churches with church, Christian churches and leadership, like suppose the pastor, whose child um, decides they're a homosexual and because of their sympathy for their child their their um, actual theology changes right but you can see that there's no theological change here they right. they, they have throughout said in no uncertain terms that, that uh, this is a battle with sin and to acquiesce in it uh, would be to violate the law of God um, but they're simply saying that same-sex attraction, uh, a a battle where you live in celibacy and repudiate uh, the attraction, try and more and more die to it and come alive to Christ. And you are making progress in that. They're saying that in and of itself, you can't say in every instance is automatically disqualifying. That's what... What they're trying so, to say, but it, it seems like that would take a lot of diligence on the part of the session and the pastors, um, because if they can, you know, I mean, if they have this sex, same-sex attraction, we see in the Catholic Church those that are um, lead, leaders in the church use that as a power to get what they, you know, I don't know how to put this, you know, in the Catholic Church, it's yes. just yeah. a terrible plague that they have. But and other sex-attracted religious leaders have used their roles to do exactly the same thing. They do, but you couldn't, I mean, then you'd have, you have to, and they there are people in the church that use they're a little older, and so they are predators on the young. Um, so having same-sex attracted, suppose it's a deacon or an elder or whatever it is, and they take them on a retreat. I mean, I don't know. It, it seems like there's there has to be some cautionary um, something there. Well... Look, um, number one, I'm not expressing an opinion on this. I can't because I'm a a judge in cases where uh, this is being litigated. Um, But what I am saying is that uh, I'm I'm giving you the committee's rationale um, that I think deserves to be treated as plausible given the way they've argued the case to this point. Yes. And the sad thing is that many, many churches don't get that point that was so important that you pointed out in this report that it is, um, we're born dead in trespasses and sin. And just because we've become a Christian doesn't mean we're rid of all that now in this world. Right. That only happens in heaven. Right. So that helps us understand ourselves. It helps us understand the feeling that I was born this way. Um, And it also, though, makes us um, 
have to be very smart. Yeah, diligent. The way you're diligent, yeah, yes, yeah. in how this is handled. Yeah, absolutely. Not just like, yay! Absolutely. Absolutely. Good point. Anyone else have a question, a concern? A, um, all right. Well, um, thank you again very much for participating tonight. And as you think about this uh, subject this week, if you do have things that occur to you, you want to ask about further, write them down so you'll remember them and bring it uh, next Wednesday night as we start this new section. I think you're going to find some of the, this very, very provocative, um, insightful, and uh, so I'm looking forward to the discussion of it. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of language. We, we thank you for its importance in the Christian life, and uh, we pray that we would be uh, diligent in the use of terms to communicate the truth and uh, to do it in love and with an attention to the needs of uh, those who hear us. We pray that you'd help us to navigate well the minefield of all of the terms that are in play in controversies about same-sex attraction. And uh, we pray, uh, uh, especially for the church and for the officers of the church as they uh, must guide and give counsel. We thank you for the good work the committee has done in all of these pastoral recommendations uh, and their confidence that the scripture and our confessional tradition is a tremendous resource for helping to glorify Christ in the lives of all of his people, uh, particularly those who wrestle with same-sex attraction. We pray that the church would embrace, continue to embrace the calling to be a place where sinners saved by grace um, find the fulfillment of Christ's promise that uh, though they may have given up all that belongs to this world, that among God's people uh, they have a family, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, uh, sons and daughters. And we pray that that would be to the glory of our Savior and uh, to the sweet good of his people in this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.